0: Beginning in in, uh, verse 1, Jonah chapter 2 says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. In verse 10, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray. God, we thank you just for this day. Help us to have understanding as we uh, study your word here. Give us clarity. And Lord, we just thank you when we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. So, interestingly enough, last year, um, last year, off the coast of Cape Cod in Prince which is the Massachusetts area, um, a man by the name of Michael Pritchard, Michael Packard, sorry, Michael Packard, who is a lobster farmer, or I guess he's not really a farmer, a lobster catcher. There you go. Uh, was doing his normal morning routine of hunting lobsters off the bottom of the uh, of the of the ocean floor. It was a normal day, seeing all kinds of fish, and he's plucking his lobster when all of a sudden he realized. Uh, that something's got him his initial thought was like is a shark eating me which by the way if you know me well the reason why I hate the water is because there are things in the water that eat people um, and uh, I've always had this long conversation uh, with people it's like what's worse to be swimming and not know what's eating you but it's eating you or to be in clear waters where you see the thing that's coming to eat you from a mile away but you know there's nothing you can do about it uh, is the confusion of not knowing what's eating you worse than like resigning to yourself like oh I'm gonna die and you know like that is what it is but the point is that Michael Packard uh, realized that something has gotten him is eating him and initially he thinks it's like a great white shark but he's like I'm not getting bitten what's going on and a few seconds in he realized he just got swallowed by a whale a, uh, a humpback whale of all whales um, and uh, the Humans aren't typically things that whales eat, and uh, it was probably by accident as uh, humpback whales just kind of open up their mouth and swim and f- swim through, and whatever gets in, gets in. Um, and so uh, he was low, uh, and then within 30 seconds of having been inside this whale, this whale comes up to the top and spits him out. Interestingly enough, uh, some other people were fishing in their boats and they see something in the water and they're like that the whale just spit up and they're trying to figure out like, what is that? And they realize it's a person. And so they bring their boats over and pop this guy out and uh, he lives to tell the story. And he's on Jimmy Kimmel, uh, like two nights later, telling his story of being swallowed by a whale hole. It's interesting that when we talk about this story of Jonah being inside the belly of a whale or large fish, uh, although most of us, uh, most historians and theologians and people uh, assume that he's talking about a whale because that is one of the handful of things that's large enough to swallow a person. There are also whales that are fairly large in the Mediterranean Sea where he would have been, and so uh, we're we're making the assumption that it was a whale. But the story of the whale, it's interesting, becomes the most fantastical part of it. I was just in uh, uh uh the cafe of Lifetime Fitness just a couple days ago uh having a conversation with some of the people that work in the cafe and they asked me what are you preaching about today uh this Sunday and I was like, "Well, Jonah's inside the whale this week." And it sparked this conversation of do you actually think a whale swallowed somebody? And oftentimes we fixate on the story of The fantastical part of a whale swallowing somebody, missing out on the greater point of this story and this particular chapter in the story of Jonah. The point isn't about the feasibility of whether or not a whale can swallow a person, but so much of, of more about the lessons that we learn from the whale. Now, for what it's worth, when they ask me if I think that Jonah was actually swallowed by a whale. Is this a literal story that happened or something that is allegorical in nature? Uh, My inclination is to tell you that I actually think this happened. The stories like this are what some people use to be skeptical about the Bible. I believe a couple of things. First of all, uh, I think when you read through the book of Jonah, Jonah clearly believes or is telling the story as if this happened. It's not allegorical in nature furthermore jesus himself references jonah being in the whale for three days and three nights as if it's a historical fact furthermore i just want to venture out and say uh we believe in the god who literally spoke everything into existence out of nothing a whale is nothing for a god who can literally create everything out of nothing and so it's not a particular difficult story for me to wrap my head around like did this actually happen yeah i think it could because the whole concept of a miracle even at face value a miracle is when god through his divine sovereignty intervenes into the natural order of humanity to break or suspend laws to weave about his purpose so was it possible do i think it happened yes but even with all that, I think that misses the point about what is actually happening here. We don't, we don't need to fixate on, the, on whether or not the whale event happened to miss the point about what God is actually teaching us through the, male, through the whale. So once again, the whale, this event happened. I think it's clear that it happened. But the next question goes, if it happened, then what is its purpose here in the story? And I think today, as we talk about the concept of repentance, I want us to know this. Our main point is this. God saves those who earnestly call on his name. God God saves those who earnestly call on his name. I want us to set the context here, and we're going to dive into this pretty heavily here. Oftentimes when we read the story of Jonah, we make the assumption that the whale or fish swallowing Jonah is like the sum total of God's judgment towards Jonah after being thrown off the boat. But what we miss out is that the whale isn't a part of God's uh, uh, judgment to, to Jonah. The whale is God's mercy and grace upon Jonah. And it's not until Jonah cries out to God while being swallowed up in the water as a great hurricane type storm is taking place. And he sinks to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea that in his distress, as he knows he's about to die, that he cries out to God to save him. And the whale is God's grace and mercy to save him from certain death. And so we have to see that God earnestly saves those who earnestly call out to him and cry on to his name and say, Lord, help me. And so we get to see what it looks like to be saved by God when you're sitting under the weight of your sin. So. Three quick points here today. What does the whale teach us about repentance? The first is this. Uh, the whale teaches us about repentance first is that God's grace is our only hope. God's grace is our only hope. The grace of God is the only thing that can save us from the weight of sin and death. In these first seven, seven verses, we see something interesting here. That is after he is literally swallowed up by this fish that he begins to pray to God and describe what's happening to him. And these first seven verses, you see it. I called out to the Lord out of my distress. He answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried and you heard my voice for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Do you see that in these first seven verses, he's describing what it was to be drowning in the sea. And the hopelessness that he had is he was in the sea. Now, why is he in the sea? We talked about this. I didn't include a map this week, but we talked about this uh, that God gives him the call to preach in Nineveh. What did we discuss last week about Nineveh? Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire is. One of the most brutal, horrific, violent societies that has ever arisen in the history of humanity. They were known for the creativity in which they used to kill people. They were known for the creativity in which they used to torture people. I told you last week that it was very hard to find things to talk about that they did that were actually able to describe with children present. They were most likely the inventors of crucifixion, perfected by the Romans but created under the Assyrian Empire and violence. Furthermore, their violence towards humanity was so grotesque that all historians are kind of in agreement that the soldiers were going through deep PTSD for the things that they had done. They would say that they would see the souls of the people that they had tortured and killed every night when they went to sleep. They were overcome with nightmares of these things. But we understand that they were reliving the violence and struggling with the magnitude of what they had done. They were particularly cruel, particularly violent. It wasn't better to live under, uh, uh, to survive their torture or to be killed Either way, they were creative in the things that they did. I think what we said last week as just a brief description, one of the lighter things that we could actually talk about is that they used to take trident light pitchforks and put them in the ground and then take somebody and go just underneath the ribcage and hang them up on those. It's no surprise that these guys came up with crucifixion. They were already doing things and just letting the weight and gravity of somebody pulling them on their ribcage as they waited out to die. That being said, he's got to go 500 miles to Nineveh because what does God say in in chapter 1? In around verse 1 or 2, the sin of Nineveh has come before me. All of the violence, all of the brutality, I've heard the cries of the people who've been oppressed, who've been murdered, who've been tortured, who've been killed by this empire, and I'm calling you to go. He says, no, I'm not going to go 500 miles north into Nineveh, which uh, Syria, once again, we talked about this, is essentially in modern day northern Iraq slash southern Turkey. Instead of going there from Joppa, he's Gonna actually jump onto a uh, into a boat and sail all the way from Joppa, which is just above uh, Israel or, or Jerusalem, all the way through the Mediterranean Mediterranean Ocean to Tarshish, which is in modern-day Spain. This brother is going to a vacation spot, beaches uh, some uh, 1,500 miles or so in the opposite direction from where he should be going. And to that point was the edge of the known world. And it says so that he could flee the presence of God. And so why is he in the ocean in the first place? Because he chose to be disobedient and flee from the call of God and think that somehow he could flee from the presence of God. And now he's cast into the waters and, and he's overcome with the waves. And he has no hope. In those waters, when they throw him overboard, he's accepted that this punishment will take his life. And yet he does something interesting here. One of the things that we miss when he's preaching here, I didn't do all of these, but I did want us to look at some of these, is that with each one of these verses as he's describing his pain, he actually parallels a song got these up on the screen. So in verse 2, verse 3, he says, and the flood surrounded me, all your waves and your billows passed over me. In Jonah 2, 3, but in Psalm 42, 7, it says, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. In Jonah 2, 4, he says, then I said, I am driven away from your sight. In Psalm 31, 2, he says, I had said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight. In Jonah 2.4, he says, weeds were wrapped about my head. In Psalm 69.1, it says, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. In Jonah 2.7, it says, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. In Psalm 18.6, in my distress, I called upon the Lord to my God. I cried for help from this temple. He heard my voice and my cry and my cry to him reached his ears. And each one of these spots, as he begins to pray inside, uh, inside the whale, he's, he's actually uh, referencing the Psalms and making these parallels. And the ultimate point of all of these, I want you to see this, is that as he looks at his broken state, nearly to, about, or about to drown and die, he parallels that to the hope that you can have in scripture through God's word. Because ultimately... Jesus is God's grace is our only hope so we see his physical distress but we ultimately see this is humility in this Uh, we've, we've talked about this before but humility is the prerequisite to salvation humility that's a part of what it is you have to be humble in order to cry out to God And consider the arrogance in the story as we've talked about to this point. I will free from the presence of God. I will go to the edge of the world. I will reject the tough call of God to go to Nineveh and preach his word and instead turn to the beautiful shores of of Western Europe and uh, spend my time on the vacation, walking on the beaches, reflecting on the greatness, taking in the air. The arrogance that somehow you could turn from God and instead where does he find himself? The flood surrounded me. The waves and the billows have passed over me. I'm a driven away from your sight. The weeds, as I'm getting to this ocean floor, or encompassing me. All the things that that is, and it requires humility for him in that moment. you think about this. Don't you think about this? As he knows his life is about to end, he could have just said, "Well, I guess this is it." But in the midst of holding his breath and taking in water, he has the last bit of presence of mind as is right to the very edge. Goodness gracious to say, Lord, please help me. And in that moment of humility, God didn't say no. God sent the fish, the whale to swallow him. The whale is God's grace. You see how so many times we miss the point of what's happening here? The whale isn't judgment, it's grace. You have to understand when you cry out to God, he might send you a whale. And the whale is God's grace. The whale isn't judgment, it's good for you. So the first thing the whale teaches us is that God's grace is our only hope because apart from a whale swallowing him up, what's he gonna do? Nothing. It's God's grace, but the second thing that it teaches us is that salvation belongs to God. Salvation belongs to God. In in verses 7 through 9, it says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It teaches us that salvation belongs to God, to him alone. It's exclusive to him. He starts off, when, I, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. That, that verbiage of into your holy temple is just uh, referencing this idea of turning towards Jerusalem where the temple is. Turning towards uh the uh the place where his or the ark of the covenant where his presence would be so basically he's saying when i was about to die when i was in my distress i turned towards the presence of the lord and i cried out to him and here's the crazy part god actually responds to his prayer god actually turns to him because salvation belongs to the lord This isn't the first place that Jonah has turned. When the call of God came, he thought that maybe his peace, we said this last week, that your peace isn't in Tarshish. He tried to turn and run from the presence of God. Maybe my peace will come. Maybe my salvation will come. If I go to the most beautiful places that the world can offer me. Our salvation will not be found in a job. Our salvation won't be found in a career. Our salvation won't be found in material things. Our salvation won't be found in our pursuit of life things. Our salvation can only be found in God. And today, if you're trying to find your hope, your peace, your life in any place other than God, you will always be disappointed. Because there's nothing in this world that can save you from the weight of your sin. My old house, I say my old house, before we we lived in our current situation, when we first came into church planting, we moved on to uh, Brandywine Drive uh, over in Ashford South. And we loved that house. We loved our neighbors. uh, And we made friends. My next door neighbor is Zach. In fact, I remember from the first day that we moved in, we were doing things, uh, Zach and his wife... um, Lauren they're like your typical like just almost like like uh old 60s 70s like television good neighbors um like we're moving in and uh as and like we would just gotten the moving trucks emptied and our house is in disarray. And next thing you know, there's like a knock on the door and like some fresh baked cookies. And they're like, hey, neighbors, just wanted to welcome you in. And uh, I was like, okay, uh, that's what's up. And so their kids were there like delivering. Their kids were about the same age as our oldest two kids. And we quickly all became friends. And, uh, you know, at first it would be like, you know, our kids are playing through the backyards, they'd see each other, then they're playing on the front yards and then we're doing all kinds of things. We stay cool. But here's the, the whole point of this is that uh, Zach is hilarious because uh, Zach is literally not just like the best neighbor um, because he'll, they'll bake you cookies. Um, anytime I was in the front of my house doing work, really on the roof, it really wouldn't matter what it was that I was doing. If Zach saw me doing something, He would put down whatever he was doing to come over to my side of the lawn with a ladder and tools and everything like, all right, what are we doing? And I'm like, okay, all right, Zach, you know, uh, if you want to. It made me feel bad. There was one point in time where he was like removing a stump from his, uh, an old stump from his front lawn that they'd cut down, but the roots were still there. The company had done a bad job. And so he's there with the shovel. And I had other things to do, but he'd done so much work on my house that I was like, I guess I need to go out there. So I grabbed a second shovel and we're just out there scooping a tree stump from, from the ground. But I say this because whenever I needed something done, and not just me, anybody on our street, whenever they needed something done, the first thing that they would do is they would call Zach and say, hey, do you know how to do this to get his insight? And then almost always, Even if you were just asking for his input, he would show up to your house like within 10 minutes and be like, all right, let's get the job done. Here's the great part about that. I knew people all the time on our street that needed things done. Uh, They never called me and asked for my help on what to do with their roof. They didn't ask for my help on what to do with their foundation or their pipes. They didn't ask for my help on what to do with backup and sewage lines and things like that. They didn't ask for my help when it came to rewiring uh, electrical sockets and things like that in their house. You know why? Because they knew that I didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) That's really what it comes down to. Uh, They knew that Mac is a good time. If you wanted to have a good time on the street, holla at Mac, he'll be up. He'll turn up in a responsible way uh, uh, if you want to stay up till midnight, one o'clock, two o'clock, I mean, y'all know about my driveway hangs throughout the pandemic, uh, uh, that people would be willing. If, hey, if you want to kick it till 2 a.m., Mac will do it. Like we can have fun just talking about life. Uh, if you want to know what restaurants you should eat at and things like that, uh, holla at your boy. I, I eat. That's what I do. But if you want stuff fixed, don't call me. And here's the thing. If you told me about a leak in your house, if you told me about uh, something that was broken electrical in your house, I would feel bad, but I don't have the ability to do anything about it. We've talked about the Lord's might often over the last year and a half. The Lord's might is his power and possibility coming together because God doesn't just have the power to do something. He's the ability to intervene. The desire to intervene. It's not just that God has the desire but doesn't have the power. It is both his ability to intervene and his desire to intervene that does something in our lives. And salvation then belongs to him because his power and possibility come together in the life of those who are willing to humble themselves and cry out to him and say, Lord, please save me. And guess what? When we cry out to him, he does it. It speaks to his sovereignty. God actually has control over the fish. I want you to think about that. He has sovereignty over the fish. It says God spoke to the fish and the fish swallowed him. God spoke to the fish and the fish spit him out onto the shore. I don't know what that fish or whale had going on that day. I don't know what priorities it had. I don't know what it was trying to do. Are you trying to eat? Are you trying to find a woman? Or uh, whatever it is. Like what is going on? Is it mating season? None of those things mattered. Whatever that whale had going on for that day it didn't matter because when the Creator speaks all of creation has to obey. I want you to understand this. When God Intervenes and saves you, you are saved. It's not just a possibility, it's a certainty that when God, even in your brokenness and sin, intervenes and saves you, it's not just that he has the ability, it's the certainty of salvation and his sovereignty that comes. Acts 4, verse 11 and 12 says this, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. When we cry out to him, he saves us because salvation exclusively belongs to God. And you can turn to all kinds of places. But you'll never find the hope that you're looking for unless you turn to God because God alone is the one who saves and that ought to encourage you here today because uh, here's what I know to be true about Jonah. Jonah was a prophet. Jonah was somebody who actually knew God, who walked with God. But even the most seasoned of saints can find themselves in a season of disobedience and rebellion. And now he has to come to turn term turn as he's in the ocean with the magnitude and weight of his sin. But there is hope for Jonah because when he cries out to God, God saves him. I want to encourage you in this. You can be the most seasoned of Christians that's been walking with God for decades. But if you ever find yourself... Under the weight and magnitude of your sin, cry out to God and see if he won't save you. There is hope and assurance for those who call upon the name of the Lord because there's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. You don't have to walk in guilt. You don't have to walk in punishment. You don't have to walk in separation. You can cry out to God and he will save you. The last thing is this, what this whale teaches us is that worship is our response. Worship is our response to salvation. Verses 8 and 9 say, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's interesting as he talks about his drowning here. A lot of theologians believe when he makes this point about those who turn to vain idols that he's actually talking about the guys who are on the boat. Now, it's interesting when you go back to chapter 1, what's happening when they're on the boat? The waves are overcoming them. The waves are about to tear this boat up. And what everyone does is they begin to make vows and sacrifices to their gods. And guess what? Nothing happens. When they cry out to their gods, nothing happens. Those vain idols do not bring you into the presence. Presence of God, or have you secure in his steadfast love? Once again, that word steadfast love is used consistently throughout the Psalms. If I were to sit there and make a graphic of how many times the word steadfast love is used in the Psalms, well then we'd have multiple pages worth of graphics because it's like hundreds of times it's just said steadfast love, steadfast love, steadfast love is this consistent description of God in his presence, that it is steadfast, consistent, unmovable, and his love, that is to say his, 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 his overwhelming love and compassion for us, as His creation, is consistent. His love towards us isn't uh, isn't uh, up and down. It's consistent. It reminds me. I know everybody's gone wild over the Super Bowl halftime show from last Sunday. Uh, with Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg, 50 Cent, Eminem, uh, Mary J., Eminem, Mary J. Blige, and uh, Kendrick Lamar. Uh, if you saw it and you grew up in your childhood, in the 90s, it was like the soundtrack of my life. I was like, ooh, that was middle school right there. And the, 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 I, I'm not gonna lie, uh, from a show standpoint, I did really like it, but um, they made me mad were three things I beef with Dre uh, and one of them not the Dre that's in the room Dre, Dr. Dre there you go uh, but the the this is so my actual biggest beef with the show um, was this is uh, Dr. Dre you do not get to sit down on the piano and play and then not sing the song my kids, know they stared at me like I was crazy. As soon as I heard that, I jumped up in the living room and said, Dolly me girl. Oh, it was like right there, you know, like that, that song like hit, you know, it's really hilarious. One of my best friends in life, Citri Bell is in Poland right now. And he's always because Poland is not connected to what's happening in pop culture. He's normally about two to three weeks behind what's happening. And so uh, we were FaceTiming this week or Facebook chatting. That's typically what we used to, to message each other. He's not an Apple guy. And so I'm like, we're on Facebook, chat. We're we're video chatting, talking, and I was like, dude, did you see the halftime show? He's like, what? It was like the Super Bowl. He's like, oh, that happened? I was like, come on, bro. He's like, you know I'm over here. I'm behind. I'm like, okay, well, to speed you up three weeks from now, and I remember telling him, and and, uh, people that know Citri, he's like the most like super sanctified of spiritual people, but I said... They said, ba na and he just goes, if you take your love away, and he just starts going in on the song, and then he took it further than I, he sang like half the song, I was like, hey man, uh, we were actually talking, don't just sing the song, but it, it cracks me up, because in that song, it says, don't leave me, I love you, you are gonna be with me. I'm I'm here, I am here. And they run all over the place singing that little R&B song for, uh, from my child. Just don't play the tune and not sing the song. That's disrespectful. Anyway, the point is, is, I love the steadfast love of God. That it is not dependent upon how faithful we are to stay and remain. But it's in the goodness and the steadfastness of his love to pursue us even when we are running from him. And when you reflect on the love of God, when you reflect on the consistency of his character, when you reflect on who he is, it leads you to a place like Jonah is in the, towards the end of this, where he begins to say about how I will have vowed, I will, uh, 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 but I, I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving, with the voice of gratefulness, with the voice that understands the goodness of God, the steadfastness of his love, the consistency of who he is, to pursue me even when I'm running from him the consistency of who he is to love me even when I don't love him the consistency think about Jonah saying when I tried to run from your presence I went to Tarshish to try to run from you but I found when I was running that you're faster and I can't get away I can't escape the love of God I can't escape the presence of God that no matter how hard I try his love is stronger his love is greater his love is faster and it's like And don't you understand that even if you made it to Tarshish, his presence is there too. And so as he begins to think about it, he says, with the voice of thanksgiving, I will repay. I will make sacrifices for you. I will worship you. Worship is the correct response when you experience the love, the grace, and salvation of God. You ought to praise him. You ought to be thankful. You ought to shout. You You ought to tell everyone about it. Worship is the correct response to being in the presence of God. I remember this. I'll I'll close with this. A couple years ago, right before church planting. Well, actually, it was right after church planting, if I remember correctly. I, I, I lose the timeline just a little bit we used to live on the campus of houston baptist university for grace's job she was the assistant director of res life who lived on campus had college kids running all over the place um and it was the whole thing the best part about it was having free babysitting all the time uh i had we had like a group text of like 20 girls who all wanted to fight to watch our kids it was great and uh especially when they're ras they've already been background checked and vetted and tested with responsibility put in it was great in fact it got to the point where we would put in a group text like hey somebody want to watch our kids and they would start fighting in the group text as to who was going to do it and no matter this always happened no matter how many times i would leave our kids with like one or two girls when we came back from our date or whatever it was doing there were like six girls in our house it's like okay you know we just wanted tag team together Jaden, aria it was great it was glorious now i say all to say that when we were there there was a restaurant that we used to eat at all the times so it was called mia's and the one that was over in river oaks like uh, uh, uh off kirby and so we would always go from hbu it was 10 minutes it wasn't that big a deal our kids loved to eat the the food and they there's a little outdoor area where they could run around and it just became a thing now i remember this is right after we church planted or left the the job that i was in to go church planting uh we didn't have a lot of money uh, we were kind of struggling, but we're like, we're trying to do something nice, go out to eat. We've been eating at Mia's for years. And so I remember we get there, we order our food, and like, it was kind of a tough season, trying to do something nice. And then I reach into my back pocket, and my wallet is gone. I left it at home. And I looked at them, and I was like, I'm... I, I don't, I don't have it. I went to the car, I did everything I searched. It just wasn't there. And the managers at Mia's looked at us and said, just eat. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I mean, I can run back home and whatnot, by the time you make the food, I'll be back with X, Y, I'll leave my family here. Obviously, we won't just leave. Uh, But I mean, like, let me go pay for it. And they're just like, no, seriously, we know you. We see your family. We see uh, how you love them and all that kind of stuff. Just sit down and eat and don't worry about it today. It was interesting, because in this moment, I have racked up a debt, and they are making food. It's embarrassing, humiliating, like, already kind of going through some struggles, trying to figure out what we're doing in life and how are we going to church plan and how is this whole thing going to happen? And at this point, like, how are we going to eat? How are we going to do all this kind of stuff? And in this moment, the managers at Mia's were like, you're good. And a couple things happened. One, it solidified our our loyalty to Mia's. You guys know how often after church, we go eat at the Mia's that's over here. It solidified a, a loyalty to Mia's to eat that fried chicken, to eat that mac and cheese. Their fruit bowl is on point uh, and all that kind of stuff, uh, to, to delve into the chicken fried straight with that jalapeno gravy. <coughs> Thank you. You know, I love that Brandon is always ready to testify. You've tasted of the goodness. Anyway, so the point is, is that uh, uh, it, it, it loyalty, but a couple things happened. One, it brought loyalty. Because when we didn't have it, they gave it. And I want you to think about this. When a debt that's been incurred is forgiven, the weight of that debt goes to the person who chooses to forgive it. If we rack up a debt of food, the person who ultimately pays the bill is Mia's. They're the ones that choose to suffer the loss they're the ones that have to make up for the dollars and cents down the road. That's not lost on me. Furthermore, Grace immediately gets onto social media because she's more of the social media person between the two of us, and she begins to describe this deep thing about what it meant for our family in this season of our life for me is to do that. And then what you saw? a couple things happen. people find out oh my gosh Mia's is so great some people are like I've been to Mia's too great management I love them too I've experienced their goodness before others were like what's Mia's and where is it and then people started going to Mia's and then we started getting uh, other people to like take pictures in the weeks afterwards like oh I went to Mia's too and then tag us in it I want you to see what's happening here when you experience grace and goodness, it leads you to be grateful, it leads you to share, and ultimately allows other people to experience the goodness that you've experienced as well. Jonah finds himself about to die. He calls out to God in his distress, and it leads him to a place of worship and gratefulness, where he begins to testify about who God is others can be blessed. Now, in the coming weeks, we'll talk about the failings of what is in Jonah's heart. The reality is, is that if you call out to God, he will save you.